I'm going to introduce Bob as he, he comes up. And so our church is an elder-led church, uh, elder-governed, staff-led. One of the things that I love about this church are the godly men who oversee um, oversee this church, oversee uh, what the staff does, make sure we don't do anything crazy or whatever, to watch out over us in the areas of, of doctrine, direction, and discipline. And uh, we have really been blessed with a lot of godly men here at this church who serve not only currently on the elder team, but who have served on the elder team in the past here. There's a there's a bunch of godly guys here at this church, and we have such a blessing. Actually, if you are on the elder board and you've ever served on the elder board here, would you stand up and let's give these guys a hand? Come on. One of the things I love about, about our elder meetings is, one, I, I love it that we end at 9 o'clock um, because uh, I was... At my previous church, our goal was to end the meeting on the same day that you started it. And so I appreciate these guys. All of us are getting a little bit older, so it's like, no, we could pretty much check out after nine anyway. That's great. But, but seriously, the, the one thing I really love, well, one of the many things I love about our elder team is uh, their commitment to prayer. We spend, we meet here twice a month, and for the first hour, we spend our time just praying for the congregation. These guys take very seriously what it means to shepherd the flock. These guys love you. They are ser- they're caring for your souls. And um, at our, our elder meetings, sometimes, you know, we have our prayer, and we don't usually uh, have any disagreements during prayer. But sometimes when we talk about other things, we sharpen one another. Let's put it that way. I mean, there's some good, vibrant discussion, but in a really good way, because we have different gifts, and they're demonstrated here within the body of Christ and on our elder board. And I really appreciate that. And I appreciate, appreciate Bob Hart because Bob has a commitment to the word of God and the Lord speaks to him and gives him specific things that he feels like need to be shared with the body. And so Bob um, has a word for us today that the Lord has laid on his heart a while back. We've been talking about it on the elder board and we all stand in unity um, behind him. This is a message talking about, you know, in First Peter, we're talking about how the culture is going this way, and the scripture many times say go this way. And we're going to talk about that today, how we deal with that. And so I'm very grateful for Bob. I'm going to pray for him. And Bob, come on up and I'll lay hands on you and pray for you. So let's thank Bob, by the way. Give him a big hand. Lord, we thank you for our brother, Bob. Thank you for his commitment to you. Thank you that he is a man of your word, that he reads the scriptures, he studies, he digs in, and um, Lord, he listens to you. And so, Lord, as we have spent this time this morning um, remembering you, remembering your goodness to us, Lord, help us to remember um, you now. As as Bob teaches us, would you give, a, give him the words to speak? Would you give us ears to hear? what the Holy Spirit has to say through our servant, or through your servant, Bob. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, this is a, this is a challenging subject, and uh, I've been praying, and everybody that knows me uh, has been praying that I'll bring it with love and grace. You know, there's a, there's a saying that if you have loveless truth, it doesn't benefit anybody. 
And, uh, you know, First Corinthians, yeah, First Corinthians, the, the chapter on love says, even if you have knowledge and you understand things, that if you don't have love, it's, it's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It, it doesn't accomplish anything. And I found that the Lord has been preparing me and my wife for this particular message. Uh, I want to share briefly with you just a little bit of how he's done that. We have a friend who we have dearly cared for and loved for more than half his life. We trade with this individual. I first met him in the year that uh, 9-11 occurred. His first day at work was on 9-11, so 22 years ago. And we've been trading with this individual almost monthly now for 22 years. He just turned 40, so we've known him for more than half of his life. And I became aware of the fact that he had, even though he was married, he married his high school sweetheart, and he has a couple of kids that are now teenagers. He recently came out as being homosexual. And I had come to understand that and was scratching my head and thinking, well, shucks, I I haven't said anything to him. I don't know what to say. And then I saw or or became aware of the fact that seven years ago he tried to commit suicide and was nearly successful. And I didn't know that. And I was seeing him almost monthly during this entire period before and after and never did know that. It really struck me. And so I finally said, well, I need to talk to him. So I called him up and I said, hey, I just just found out that, that you had tried to commit suicide. Can, can we have lunch and, and, and just chat? And he said, yeah. So we went to lunch over Jay Alexander's at the Forum, and we spent two and a half hours together at lunch. And I spent most of that time just listening to him and letting him tell me why and why he got so despairing that he wanted to take his own life. And he was despairing because he had felt like he was attracted to men and he just couldn't live with himself. And, and so he, he felt like he just ended. And so, you know, we talked for a good long time, and I shared a lot of the scriptures with him very gently and very tenderly. And at the end of lunch, he said, well, if I don't quit, then what? And I said, well, that's between you and God. And I thought about that. Later on, I thought, well, was I, was I not bold enough? Did I not address what I should have? But I don't think so, as I think back on it, because, you know, I don't think this guy knows the Lord. He doesn't have a Bible. He doesn't go to church. And, and so even though I asked him, I said, are you a Christian? He said, of course. I think it's almost like, well, if you're not Jewish, you're Christian in America. And so I don't really think he knows the Lord. And my job is not to clean up his act. It's to be sure he knows the Lord. And so uh, I asked him, uh, he now is engaged to be married to a man. And, <clears throat> and I asked him, I said, do you think you and your partner would be interested in coming to dinner with me and Nancy? And he said, well, yeah, we'd like to do that. And so we had him to dinner this past Tuesday night. They got there at 6.30, and they left a quarter to midnight. And there were no harsh words. There was no anger. There was no, you know, acrimony. It was, and, and again, I purposed beforehand, I said, I'm going to purpose to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And so for the first hour and a half, I listened to these men tell me each, tell us their stories. They told us about something that struck me, both of them, as I think back on it, both of them had significant, distant, very fractured relations with their fathers, both of them. They were different, but both of them really had just agonizing relations with their fathers. And I don't know if that's critical to understand, but I I was, I felt for them. Now, what I'm going to talk about, we're going to, 
We're going to have, hopefully, on the screen the scriptures that I'm going to be looking at today because I want you to be able to see what the Word says. This is not what I have to say. This is what the Word has to say. Back in 2015, after the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was the law of the land, the elders of this church, many of whom stood up uh, and, and were on the elder board, and I was at that time, studied for about three months, and we put together what the church policy is on sexual immorality. We're not calling out homosexuality. We're calling out all forms of sexual immorality and, and saying, here's what the church's policy is. And so with that in mind, uh, I want to I share this one scripture, which is not on the, on the board. It's from James 5, verses 19 and 20. It says, my brethren, if any, of them, uh, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of, ten, of sins. Now, that's not talking about saving our souls. It's talking about saving the soul of the individual who turns back from his sin. And so with, with that as our primary goal, we want to love people. We want them to understand the truth of the word and, if possible, be able to receive it and repent. Now... There's a passage of Scripture, if you want to look along in your Bible, it's going to be here on the screen, as I said, but we're going to first go to Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, it's interesting, it starts out with the disciples questioning Jesus about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now think about this, here's Jesus, he's uh, in his early 30s, he started his ministry when he was about 30, and he was crucified after we record in the Scriptures that he'd gone through three Passovers. He was crucified on the third Passover, so he was about 33 when he died. And he probably made disciples of men who were pretty close to his own age. You know, So most of these men that were there arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, these were guys that were about Jesus' age. And look at how he responds. He calls a child to himself. Now imagine a little boy and, and Jesus calling amongst these men that are standing around arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He calls a little boy to himself and he puts him right in the midst of them. And he says to him, I truly say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to be like a child. That's kind of a, huh, answer, you know? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he says, you've got to be like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's this little boy there in the midst of these grown men. And he says, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And then he goes on to say, he says, woe to you if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. He says, it would be better for you to have a heavy millstone hung around your neck and be cast into the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so, you know, it's interesting as, as we continue, I want to take a little bit of a detour and then come right back to this same passage in Matthew chapter 18. I want to go to a passage that we find in 1 Corinthians. And it's in chapter 12, and it's verses 14 through 16. And the, the occasion of this passage is 
is God has revealed by his Holy Spirit what the gifts of the Spirit are. And he says, well, you've got some are preachers, some are pastors, some are teachers, some are evangelists, some have a word of wisdom, some have a word of knowledge, you know, some have faith. And he goes on, he lists all these gifts of the Spirit. And he says, these are for the common good, meaning they're for the body. You individually as members, you each have some or more of these gifts and therefore the common good. But then he goes on and he says this. He says, for the body is not one member, but many. So it's us collectively. And he says, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. So Paul here uses a figure of speech. He uses the individual parts of our body, our hand, our eye, our foot, our ear, to be representative of the members in the, in the fellowship of Christ, in the, the church, in the body. So with that, now let's go back to Matthew 18 because here's a misunderstood portion of Scripture. When we go back, <clears throat> again, now we read, it says, For whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck. But then he goes on to say, Woe to that man, woe to the world, because of stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Okay? And then he says, he says this that relates to what I went to in in 1 Corinthians, he says, but if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. And he goes back to the little ones, this child that's there, and he's saying all this in the hearing of this little child. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, back when there was a, a bombing of, a, of an abortion clinic some years back, Eric Rudolph was involved in that, and he fled to North Carolina, and he... he he uh, hid out in the mountains of North Carolina for quite a while. We had a brother that was also involved in that, and his brother cut his hand off because he was involved in it. But our, our hand doesn't have an independent mind of its own. It doesn't act independent of our brain. And our eye doesn't have an independent mind of its own. So here again, Jesus was using the same figure of speech. He's saying, if a member of the body causes stumbling, then you're to put it out. And how do we know that? Well, let's, let's keep reading. Let's keep listening. So <clears throat> we go on, and, and, you know, the next thing it says, For the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. Now then Jesus asked the question, because among Christians they go, well, this doesn't sound very loving. We're supposed to put people out of the body. I mean, don't they need to be in fellowship with Christians in order to hear the truth and, and repent and come back? And Jesus anticipates that. He says, what do you think? In other words, he's asking them, does this seem startling to you that I'm telling you these stumbling blocks should be put out of the body? 
And Jesus says, what do you think? And then he answers them. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go search for the one that is, that is straying? In other words, he's saying the Father's got this. The Father is going to bring that one that's straying back. You protect the body. You protect the little ones because they're vulnerable, and they see what's going on. This is not happening in a vacuum, and you have to protect the little ones and those that are vulnerable and those that are easily influenced. So he goes on and he says, if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99, which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, we're going to see this affirmed. This is not the only place in Scripture where we get this kind of a teaching. It's going to be affirmed in another Scripture that we're going to look at in just a minute. So, <clears throat> so Jesus tells people to exclude from their fellowship stumbling blocks. Now, how, as Christians, are we supposed to go about doing that? We're not supposed to be harsh. We're not supposed to just hammer people. We're supposed to be loving. And so just as I, I found the opportunity that God brought along for me to have a meeting with first this one guy and then his, his significant other, and we spent hours and hours together, and we... we examined the Word together. We looked at what the Word said, and they were not offended. They were perplexed, but they were willing to hear it. And so that's one of the things we want to do is we want to, we want to give instruction with gentleness, and the Scripture uses those words. It tells us to give instruction with patience and gentleness, as you'll see in a minute. So, so then Jesus says... <clears throat> It's not the will of any one of these little ones to perish. Now we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8, and then another section in Hebrews. And so we see the Scripture here, I hope. Um, there it is. <clears throat> in Hebrews it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now look at this last verse. This is really something that is very serious, and it's something we don't often take notice of. It's in the Scripture. It says, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, there's a truth that's here, and it's pretty deep, and it is that God doesn't interfere in the lives of those that have not come to Him. He, he reproves and disciplines those that wear the name of Christ, those that are His children, because He wants them to walk in holiness and sanctification. We're the bride, and He wants us to be pure. And so he does discipline and chasten those that he loves. And he starts out very gently. I've been disciplined before, and I remember it. And it's good to learn from the discipline of the Lord. It says it's the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And it's good to fear the Lord. It's a good thing. And so that's one of the things that God does is that's that stray that's out of the 99. And God disciplines, but he does it very gently. 
And if you harden your heart, it says in Scripture, after much discipline, then you will be broken suddenly and without remedy. So he is patient. He, he disciplines us. He, he tries to draw us back to himself. He tries to get our attention. But if we harden our heart and we don't listen, well, then it says that if we do that after much discipline, then he'll break us and without remedy. Now, I'm not going to dwell on that, but now we go back to the passage in Matthew because we have to take all of these scriptures into account as we, the church, try to understand how do we deal with the world and how do we deal with fellow brothers and sisters in the body. So we go back to Matthew, and this is just the next verses. I'm not, I'm not skipping any. In verse 15, it says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Okay? And there's a way that we're supposed to do that. It gives instruction to us. It says, in humility, so that when you have preached to others, be careful lest you be tempted. So we don't go in harshness and, and whatnot. We go hoping that we can win our brother. We go hoping that they will hear and that they will turn. So it says, if, you, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he then refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, he's saying, you be gentle. You try to win your brother. And we don't just hammer people. We don't go, okay, you get three strikes. One, two, three. After three, you're out. We don't do that. We be gentle. We try to give instruction with patience and with love. But nevertheless, this is Jesus still in the same conversation with that little child in the midst of him saying, woe to you if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. He's protecting the body. And that's what this is about. So we continue. Now looking back on the last half century in our land, in our country, I want you to think with me for a minute about the changes that if you're old enough, you certainly can remember. You know, more and more we're faced with the changing morals of our culture. Open sensuality is on the increase. Immoral lifestyles are celebrated. More sensuality is, is portrayed in movies and, and in television. More individuals are viewing pornography. It's easy to see. It's right there on the Internet. You used to have to go into a, into a drugstore, and it was, it was in a behind-the-counter wrapped in a brown wrapper, and you felt ashamed if you got it. Now it's right there so easy anybody can look at it, and we have people that are addicted to it. And I remember a, a, a statistic one time that someone said that if you're in church and you, there are 75% of the men in church that look at pornography regularly, and he said, so look to the left and look to the right, and both of those guys are probably addicted to, to pornography. I hope that's not the case here. But it's something God tells us to deal with. He says, bring your thoughts captive to Christ. We're supposed to flee these kinds of things. So it's not just about homosexuality, it's about any form of sexual immorality, even if it's our thought life and what we're doing in secret because God sees all that. Now, you know, those who, greater and greater percentages of all births are now from unwed mothers. Violence and crime are more prevalent than in previous times in our nation. Those who do marry are abandoning their unions in greater numbers than in previous times. 
In, in some demographics, the number of abortions is approaching the number of live births. In those same demographics, upwards of two-thirds of all children are born to unwed mothers. If we realize our lives are not our own, but that we now belong to Christ Jesus, having been purchased by his blood and, and his death, how are we to interact with this culture? That's the challenge. How do we show the love of Christ to the watching world? And so we're going to talk about that because there's instruction in Scripture about that. Now, we know that some denominations are ordaining homosexuals as ministers. We know that, that some practicing homosexuals are being welcomed into the church and embraced. And we are finding out about this more and more, even here in our local, in our local city. And it's, it's getting national news. And clearly these churches are teaching that this finds favor with God and is loving and compassionate, but is it? Is it really for, the, for these folks? Now, hear what, one, what Scripture says about one righteous individual who lived in such conditions. Now, this is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It says, it's talking about when God rescued Lot, Abraham's nephew, and he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The question I have for us is, are we unfazed by what surrounds us, or does it oppress and torment our souls? You know, that's a key thing that we should think about because we belong to Christ. We've been purchased by His blood. Now, let's begin by addressing one of the many onerous or er erroneous teachings about what Jesus did or did not say. Some people say that, well, Jesus never spoke out against homosexuality, so it must not be that big a deal. And I've even had some people say, who I, I love, I think they've changed their opinion since then. I've been told they have, but they said, gee, I really don't like Paul. <laughs> and they don't like what Paul had to say. So, so they, they sort of were inclined to pick and choose things in scriptures that they wanted to hold fast to and, and say, gee, I don't like these other scriptures, so I'm just going to kind of put those away. But as we look at Mark... This is what did Jesus really say. If we go to Mark chapter 7, verses 22 and tw 21 and 22, and I want you to realize that in order for you to get the, the clear teaching on this, I've mixed two translations. I've mixed the NIV with the NASB. And so it says, Jesus says, From within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. And he says, all these things, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Now, it's important to make note of that word defile because it plays a key role in what we're trying to understand here. Jesus says this. He says, all these things proceed from inside the man and they defile the man. And then we know from Scripture, from 2 Timothy, it says all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Because it's God-breathed, 
The Holy Spirit gave these words to these men who wrote it down. They didn't just write it because it seemed good to them. It was inspired by God. Now, how does the Bible define sexual immorality? And this is where this is the kind of message that you want to be careful about having, you know, discretion about your children being in the, in the meeting. And it's not really something that I'm ashamed of. It's straight from the Word of God, but it's going to be a little hard to hear. So I'm preparing you. Kind of hang with me for a second. You know, <clears throat> Jesus taught from the law, the prophets, and Psalms. And the instruction that's on this subject of sexual immorality, it runs all the way from Genesis through Deuteronomy and the law, all the way through the Psalms, all the way through the Gospels and the New Testament. And we find Jesus did teach on this. And I said, I want you to pay attention to the word defiled. Now, first we're going to go back to the book of Leviticus. We're going to go to chapter 18, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, and I'm going to kind of fly through these verses. But I'm going to ask you a question that's going to be a little bit difficult, okay? And it's a rhetorical question, and I'm doing it on purpose. But if I ask you, is it okay to have sexual relations with your mother? You're going to recoil in horror, and you're going to say, of course not. Of course it's not okay to have sexual relations with your mother. Well, this, this is how the Lord starts this chapter. This is how he starts that. And that's why I bring that up, because this is straight from the Word. Now look at what it says as we go to Leviticus. He says, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Here it is. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She's your mother. Do not have relations with her. Okay, now I'm, I'm skipping. There's a number of verses here, and I'm going to hit them kind of quickly. He says in verse 9, don't have sexual relations with your sister. There's a reason we're going to look at these, not in detail, but I just want to, want to have you think about it. He says in verse 15, don't have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. In verse 20, he says, don't have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. In verse 21, there's something that's right there in the middle of this passage that's a little odd as you think about it. He says... Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch. They were burning their children, their little ones, in fire as sacrifices to demons. And that's what the, the nations around Israel were doing. And that's right there in the middle of this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Now, we have an internal compass. The world calls it a moral compass. We in the church call it the Holy Spirit. God has caused His Son, Spirit, Jesus' Spirit, to dwell within our bodies and he convicts us, and we know these things are wrong. And so here's the list that Moses received from God that he gave to the children of Israel, and we're not quite through yet. As we continue, we just read about don't sacrifice your children to Moloch, and now in verse 22, don't have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And then verse 23, I'm sorry, this is in the Word, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Then he ends it, and here's the word defile. It's, it's appeared over and over in this teaching. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Now, where do we go from this? I mean, 
Why, why did I bring this up? Remember, Jesus talking to the crowd said, it's what comes out of a man that defiles a man. It's not what goes into the man that defiles the man. Now, he was a Jew. He was speaking to Jews. They knew the law. They knew what defiled meant. And included in the things that Jesus said, he said, sexual immorality defiles a man. Now, the word that's in the original language in the Greek in the New Testament is pornea. It's the word from which pornography is derived. And Jesus did not need to give them a list and say, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this because they knew what defiled a man. He said, sexual immorality defiles a man. And so it wasn't true that Jesus didn't address these things. He addressed it so clearly they knew absolutely what he was talking about. And he said, don't do these things. They defile the man. Now, <clears throat> so the next thing I want to take a look at is I want to talk about how do we as brothers in the Lord, how do we address this when we encounter it? So first we're going to go to Galatians, and we're going to look at Galatians 6, verse 1. And it says, it says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Wouldn't it be terrible to preach these things to somebody and then be tempted to do them yourself? That'd be terrible. There's a warning there to us that we, need, we must do this in a spirit of gentleness or else we too might be tempted. We want the Lord to protect us. It was so important that we ask God to protect us that Jesus, when the disciples asked, teach us how to pray, included in that was, Lord, do not let us be led into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's something we need to be constantly vigilant about. He tells us to bring our thoughts captive unto Christ Jesus, to think on things that are true, that are excellent, that are worthy of praise. So we have the capacity to deal with these things. He tells us, this is what I want you to do. In 2 Timothy, it says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, but it finishes with this, with great patience and instruction. I hope that when Nancy and I talk to these individuals, we did it with gentleness and with patience and instruction. And we certainly prayed about it before we talked to them. And I'm, I'm encouraging you not to be afraid, but to be bold and be courageous, but do it with the Lord's leading. Because I didn't know what I was going to say to these folks. I really didn't. And I hope I get a chance to talk with them some more. Because... I really love this one guy that I've known for 22 years, and I want to think of him being cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. I mean, it's that serious. We're, we're, we're not just saying, gee, let's just everybody love and, and get along. This is about eternity. So in, in 1 Peter, in, in Ephesians, it says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And in 1 Peter, it says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, 
So a lot of Christians will come back with, well, doesn't it say, judge not that you be not judged? You know, how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you deal in a world where we're told not to judge? All right, well, the Scriptures address it very specifically. And, and many Christians have not seen this, but it's right there in black and white in the Scripture. So we're going to go there. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you may want to turn there and camp out with me for just a minute, because this is an important passage of Scripture, and it deals with this issue head on. And here we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Now, it wasn't his mother, but he was having sexual relations with his father's wife. And Paul says, this is a kind of immorality that's not even named among the Gentiles. And this is Paul's instruction. He says, for I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. And he goes on and he tells them, he says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So here's Paul, and he's giving the reason for this instruction to the body. He says, if you have this type of sexual immorality present in your body and you leave it there, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Now, it's not just applicable to this form of sexual immorality. It has to do with drunkards. It has to do with extortion. It has to do with lying. It has to do with adultery. It has to do with fornication. Fornication is any sexual congress outside of marriage. You know, if, if, if my son and his girlfriend are having relations with one another and they're not married, I have to tell them, this, this doesn't please the Lord. I engaged in that kind of thing before I became saved, and I'm, I'm ashamed of it, and I'm sorry, and it didn't please the Lord. And he says, whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And I got to experience that, and it wasn't pleasant. And I said, I've learned when you get disciplined what it feels like, and I'm glad I got disciplined, but it was not pleasant. And so this is the kind of thing that if our Father loves us, He will discipline us for this. So Paul goes on and he says, okay, here's what should happen. I've already judged such a one, and I'm going to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul may be saved, his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now let's keep going. Let's see what it says next. We're going to skip down to verse 9. So in verse 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have had to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate, listen to this language, with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, I didn't write this. 
This is what the Holy Spirit inspired to be written for our instruction, to protect the little ones because they're vulnerable. And many of those who are not little but are new in the faith are still babes in Christ, and they're vulnerable, and we don't want them to stumble. And so this is a critical teaching. So he says, don't judge those who are outside because God will judge those in the world. But those that are in the body, you are commanded to judge. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion. This is what the leaders of the church are instructed to do. Now, God appoints in the church all the way back 2,000 years ago. He instructed to appoint elders, plural, in the churches. And the governance form that we find in Scripture is to have multiple elders in the church. And they're to go to the Word and they're to make decisions and to do it lovingly for the purpose of protecting the body, growing the body. Their their goal in Scripture is to minister the Word faithfully and to pray for the body. And so five years or eight years ago in 2015 when the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was the law of the land, At that point in time, the then board of elders, of which I was on the board and Jeff was on the board, and none of the current elders other than me and Jeff were still on on that board, but we spent three months, and many of the men who were on that board, some of the men are in this room today, and we came to a unanimous decision about how we should address this, and a paper was put together, and I'm just pretty much teaching right straight from that paper. That's what we concluded the Scriptures instructed us to do as a church. But unfortunately, the church does not get taught these things very much. And so if we did and we said, look, there are two standards. There's one standard for those who call themselves Christians. If they name the name of Jesus and say, I belong to Him, there's one standard for those folks, and there's a different standard for the world. You don't condemn the world. You don't judge the world. But you're commanded to judge in the church. But you don't just say, hey, you're out of here. What you do is you say, I have to go to him privately. If I see a brother in sin, then I have to go to him privately. And that applies to each one of you too. So if you see a brother in sin, you go to him privately, you pray about it, you see what does the Word say. If you need to get counsel from somebody about what you should say, you do that. But you go to him privately with gentleness and patience to try and win them to obey the word, to repent and walk according to what God's plan for them is. It says in Scripture, God's commandments are not burdensome. And so He wants us to do this. But if your goal is to say, gee, I want to do everything I can to make this palatable. I want them to hear this. I want them to be able to walk in this. Now, unfortunately, if we don't train our children and our grandchildren, then the world will train them, and it's busy doing that. And so that's why it's critical that the church address these things in the light. That's why we have to talk about these things. And I'm going to finish with that. So what happened to this individual that Paul said, put him out of your midst? I've decided to give him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul may be saved. Well, in the next letter that we have to the Corinthian church, we find out exactly what happened to this individual. And the result was what we would hope. Listen to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, it says, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. 
Now, then he goes on, he says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted on him by the majority. So they listened to Paul. They put him out of their fellowship. And that punishment was sufficient, Paul says. And so what was the outcome? It says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. In other words, he repented. And Paul is saying, bring him back in. Reaffirm your love for him. It had its intended effect. The father, the good shepherd, Jesus, went and and dealt lovingly and patiently and gently with the one that had strayed. We have to trust that to them. I have to do that with a son of mine. And I pray for him every day because he has strayed. And I want the Lord to bring him back. And I pray that the Lord will be gentle and that he'll be faithful. And I want to see him come back. And it weighs on me and my wife every day. But nevertheless, you have to pray and you have to say, Lord, please, please love these. Please do what you did to me. You had mercy on me. You made me fear you. You caused me to repent. I'm glad he did. You know, please do that for others. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we were in chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither. What's the first item on the list? It's not homosexuals. The first item on the list is fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. It's down, down the list. But we have a whole culture today that thinks that living together outside of marriage and having sexual relations is no big deal. You know, the, the sitcom Friends just made it a big laugh in. You know, it was one of the most popular things ever. But the church shouldn't do this. We've been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus. We should be pure and holy. So... It says, if you do these things, if you practice these things, you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. So there's a difference. Now, there are going to be those that are going to say on the last day, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you who practiced lawlessness. That's the key. If we sin and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we don't confess our sins because we say, hey, this is okay, I'm just having sex with my girlfriend, you know, I'm just being an adulterer, you know, I'm just doing what the culture says is okay, that's not acceptable. It didn't change. You think about it, 3,500 years ago is when Moses was instructed by God to tell the children of Israel, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Why would we pluck one of those out of the list 3,500 years later and say, this is okay. You know, we should change with the times. This is not okay. Now, we're not supposed to condemn the world, but we're supposed to love the world and pray for them and share the truth of Christ. But we don't go by saying, you got to straighten your act up. we got to go say, do you know Jesus? You know? Do you know who he is? He came to earth. He was the one by whom and through whom all things were made. And he left his throne and he came here and he put on flesh and became a servant and died and suffered 
And it's absolutely necessary because if he hadn't done that, we can't be saved. It's not God grades on a curve. It's not like, well, I'm pretty good, so when we get there, I hope he lets me in. If Jesus had skipped the cross, we would have that. But he didn't skip the cross because it was absolutely essential. And so that's what we're dealing with. Now, as we continue, it says, these won't inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you. That applies to me. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. He has redeemed all of these kinds of sins. Such were some of us. And so he calls us to be holy and sanctified. We're his bride. Now, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, listen to this. It says, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's not very oblique. It's pretty straightforward. He calls us to, com- to keep his commandments. Now, this is to the church. This is to the body, to those who are so-called Christians. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, oh, this one is one to really think about. It says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? This is serious. We want to really take this seriously. We do not want to walk in disobedience. We, we want to be, we want to stand before the Lord and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, do people sin? Yeah, that's the key. You confess your sins, you don't practice them. Now, if you had a drunk in the body of Christ and somebody was an alcoholic and they said, gee, I have a hard time with alcohol, but I know it's not good for me. I know it's a sickness and I'm doing everything I can to quit drinking. And they go through a period of being completely dry, and then they have something happen in their life, and they turn to that crutch, and they get drunk. Do you throw them out of the church? No. You say, let me come alongside you. Let me love you. Let me encourage you. Let me pray for you. It's no different with somebody else who says, gee, I'm attracted to men. They can't say, this is a normal lifestyle. This is good. It should be celebrated. It should be affirmed. That's practicing sin. If somebody says, I, I, I struggle with it. I don't want to do this. I need your help. Pray for me. You know, if, if, if two people have been sleeping together and they say, oh, gosh, I see now we shouldn't do this, and they decide to quit, and then, then they stumble, do you kick them out of the church? No. You go back to them and you say, look, you, you can't practice this. You can't say this is okay. That's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to, to, to witness to the truth and say, I'm going to walk in your commandments. Now, in Hebrews 10, chapter 26 through 29, again, I didn't write this. This is right there in the Word. <clears throat> it says, 
There's no longer a sacrifice for sins if we go on sinning willfully. How much severer punishment will there be if we trample underfoot the the Lord and the blood of the covenant? Now, back to what we should teach our children. And this is whether we are my age and my children are almost 40 and approaching 37. You know, it doesn't matter. We should teach these things to our children and we should encourage them to teach them to their children. Because if we don't, if we just keep it to ourselves, the culture will. And it tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where do we renew our mind in? His Word. So don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So in in Matthew chapter 4, this is right after Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist, Then he went out into the desert for 40 days, and he was tempted by Satan. And we know that that passage. And immediately after that, Satan departed from him. And now we read this. This is where Jesus then begins his ministry. Look at how Jesus begins his ministry. In Matthew 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If we fail to teach this, repentance is essential. It's not just come to Jesus. He's God's a genie in heaven. If you punch in a prayer, he's going to give you health and wealth and happiness. He starts with the message, repent, which means turn from your sins and don't do those anymore. When the woman was caught in adultery, you know, Jesus, they they brought her to Jesus and said, hey, we're commanded to stone her. What did Jesus do? He said, well... Those of you that are without sin cast the first stone. And slowly, all the people that were there began to drift away, and it notes from the oldest first. I can understand that, being as old as I am. And they began to drift away until there was no one there. And then Jesus said to the woman, he said, Woman, did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. He said, I do not condemn you either. But then he finished and said, Go and sin no more. That's the message. We cannot say these kinds of practices are good and, and positive and to be affirmed. Now, you don't condemn the world, but you have to be faithful in the body of Christ. And if God gives you an opportunity to share the word, because I don't, I don't have much confidence that either of these two young men, who one was 40 and one was about 36, I don't have any confidence that either one of them really knows the Lord. And so I'm hopeful I'll have a chance to spend more time with them in the Word. But I did tell them I was preaching this message, and I told them what it was going to be about, and I told them that we are commanded as Christians not to let this kind of practice stay in our body. And I said, you don't kick them right out, but you can't let it stay in the body. It's very plain. Scripture has made it absolutely black and white. And this is what the elders concluded back in 2015, and we put it in a paper. My wife is doing this, meaning, hey, you're running late. Ooh, I am. All right. So so I'll finish up. The the Deuteronomy passage that we didn't talk about is Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 7. It says, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. We're told to teach this. Now, whose responsibility is it? Is it the moms? 
you know, is, is since she's at home all day and the dad goes off to work sometimes, you know, is it the mom's responsibility? No. The father's supposed to be the head of the household. He's, he's supposed to take the responsibility for this. And it struck me when both of these men talked about the relationships that they had with their fathers, that it's very important that we not exasperate our children. It's very important that we have a loving relationship with our children. The next day, after Nancy and I had spent till nearly midnight talking with these, the first thing I did is I sent my son, who's in Berlin, Germany, a text and said, hey, I want you to know I love you dearly. Because I'm just sitting there thinking, geez, I sure hope I sure hope I communicated that message. But if I didn't, I need to start more and more now. So I'm going to wind up here. It's very important that we teach these things to our children. And my wife has a, a saying. She says, preach, preach, preach. And if necessary, use words. <laughs> you know, in other words, we want them to see by our lives, by the way we treat them, that it's genuine, that it's sincere. And sometimes we do a, an abysmal job of doing that, but it's never too late to straighten up. It's never too late to do better. <clears throat> you know, I think that's, that's it. Um, I will hang around afterwards, and if you want to ask questions, if you want to come up and tell me you don't like what I said, that's okay. Um, you know, I appreciate you being patient, and so let me, let me close this in prayer, and I know Tim wants to come up and close us after we're done here. So, Father in heaven, I, I thank you for your loving kindness to us. I thank you for your word, which is truth. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful and to be bold and courageous in Christ Jesus. And, and our trust is in you. You're our shield. You're our defender. You're our fortress. You're our hiding place. We pray all these things in, in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.